Good morning, my name is Ellie Jones. Please listen to God's word from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, a uh, Lutheran pastor in Connecticut uh, named John Rasmussen uh, wrote a piece called Being Pro-Life and Politically Homeless. That really spoke to me. I was prepared for Secretary Clinton to be president. I knew that her administration could mean significant things for religious freedom, for the secularization of the public square, for Christian ethics on marriage and the sanctity of life. I, I was mentally ready to live in exile and to be misunderstood, while I was also ready to pray for Mrs. Clinton, to speak the best about her as my president, to disagree with respect. I wasn't prepared to be misunderstood, potentially, in a different way. With the election of now President Trump, Christians may have reason to feel safer in our religious freedoms. We may have hope for issues that we care about in the area of life, but this election also brings a possibility of misperception by neighbors and even by fellow believers. I'm unapologetically pro-life, Rasmussen says, and, and I'm also pro-woman, and I think Jesus calls me to both of those things because I, I raise my sons to respect women and, and reject the porn culture, and I raise my daughters to be strong and confident and, and godly and smart and and yet the recent Women's March on Washington, for example, told me that I can't be both pro-life and pro-woman when I thought those things complemented each other. Will my pro-life commitments now be taken as misogyny by my neighbors? I would gladly fund the relocation and settlement of a Syrian refugee family in my neighborhood, Rasmussen says, because whether people fleeing terror are Christians or Muslims, they're my neighbor. Am I now a liberal who doesn't care about American safety? Is it possible for me to affirm that my first allegiance is to the kingdom of God without being unpatriotic or seen as ungrateful for the land that I do love? Can I hope and pray that Planned Parenthood would be defunded because it leads women against the opportunity to make real choices and not be labeled as anti-woman? And at the same time, can I argue that defunding Planned Parenthood will be a failure if it's not backed by churches who are willing to support and mentor women in crisis pregnancies and fund other clinics that offer comprehensive health care? Rasmussen concludes, we live in a confusing mix of post-Christian secularism and cultural Christianity. And for many followers of Jesus, it feels like we don't fit anywhere. 
Now, it's not just followers of Jesus in the 21st century. Jeremiah's times in the 7th century B.C. are a lot like ours. This, this world power, Babylon, has come to Jerusalem, has come to God's people. They've, they've conquered the city. They've killed many of its inhabitants. They've carted the rest of them off into exile. And God's people now find themselves living in a huge city. It's, it's hostile. It's violent. And it's filled with all kinds of people, all kinds of groups who are, many of them, ignorant or opposed to God's truth. And so God's people are surrounded by this diverse community of people with radically different ideas about what community is supposed to look like, religion, morality, the nature of the world, the nature of mankind, and even the goal of human existence. Do you see the parallels? Uh, Tim Keller does a great job bringing this out in a message on Jeremiah 29. Many people in society feel like they're outsiders, not just Christians, but everyone feels like the world doesn't reflect my values. It doesn't look like what I care about and and what I think it should, and and most people feel like they don't fit. I mean, liberals feel like the country is way too conservative, and and they're frustrated and concerned, and and conservatives feel like the country has gone way too liberal, and and they're pulling their hair out. I mean, look, look right here. It's getting worse all the time. I mean, You've experienced that, haven't you? You feel like, I I don't fit, I I don't belong. How can liberals feel like exiles in the same country that conservatives feel like they're exiles in? And then people in the middle feel like they're squeezed and pulled from both ends. And, And then there's millions of racial and ethnic and religious minorities who look around at our culture and say, well, this doesn't look like me either. This doesn't feel like home. I'm, I don't belong here. How come everybody feels like they're on the outside? Part of the answer is that we live in a culture where there really is no consensus about what is good and right and and what society should look like. Thomas Marshall was uh, governor of Indiana who became vice president under Woodrow Wilson. And uh, he was sitting in uh, a long Senate debate a number of years ago, and uh, some senator was going on and on at this long laundry list of everything that he thought uh, America needed. And uh, Marshall got a laugh when he ended the debate saying, what this country really needs is a good five-cent cigar. If you Google what this country needs, that'll give you some insight as to why we can't agree and why nobody feels like they fit. What this country needs is a good war according to Ambrose Bierce. What this country needs is a good mental insecticide. That was Dr. Zeus in a cartoon during World War II. Imagine that. What this country needs is a few more unemployed politicians, according to Angela Davis. And President Herbert Hoover said, what this country needs is a great poem. Well, I I don't know if we'll see Herbert Hoover in heaven and ask him what in the world he was thinking of. We live in this complex fragmented society, don't we? It's a lot like the one that these Jewish exiles found themselves in. So the question becomes, how do you respond to a society that's opposed to your beliefs and values? How do you live faithfully in a hostile city with people who don't agree with you and you don't fit in? 
And the answer of God through Jeremiah to these Jewish exiles is astonishing. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We're continuing in this series, looking forward, while we're also looking back some to our vision and values and foundational parts of our faith and God's message and what we believe God has called us to be and do. And and this morning we're looking at what it means to live in the city where we feel like we don't belong. Here's the situation. This Babylonian power, again, has conquered God's people and taken them into exile. And the Babylonians now are faced with this question of what do we do with these people who don't really fit? They don't belong. You know, we could, we could drive them out. We could, you know, slam a door, point a spear in their faces and say, you don't look like us, get out. But, you know, then people tend to get angry about that and gather other exiles and come and attack you. You, you can subjugate the people. You could push them down, enslave them and put them in chains. But, you know, that again tends to make people a little cranky and, and leads to revolts and rebellions. So what the Babylonians did was really smart. They assimilated those people into their culture. They said, you come in and, and you can have good jobs, you can live in good homes as long as you become like us. Now, if you know your Bible, uh, you may recognize this from the book of Daniel. That was the whole pattern that the Babylonians used with Daniel and his friends, right? Give them new names, raise them in your education system, make them learn a new language, so they are no longer distinctive. That's the deal. Embrace the dominant culture. Become socially and linguistically and culturally and religiously just like everyone else. And after a few cultures, after a few generations, that culture is gone. It doesn't exist anymore right? And the Babylonians want the Jewish people, want God's people to decrease, to disappear eventually. But God says, do not decrease there. Multiply there. I I want you to grow in your numbers and in your influence. So how do you do that? Well, at the other end of the spectrum from cultural embrace, there were some other prophets of God who were giving the people a message of how to do that. And we see that if you want to go back and read in chapter 28. We don't have time to get there this morning. But they're basically saying, look, God's not going to keep you here in Babylon. We're going home soon, like within the next couple of years. So don't settle down in the community. Don't don't really invest anything here. Yeah, we're here for a short time, but let's hang out in our little cultural enclave, right? It's a kind of a cultural defiance that says, I'll go along with the dominant culture on the outside, but, but inside there's, there's fear and resentment. You know, sort of like when you try to get the, the toddler to sit down and there's this battle going on and on and on, and finally the kid sits down and he's got this scowl and, and, and you ask him what's wrong and he says, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. That's kind of this posture of cultural defiance. It says, I will go into the community to get what I can out of it for my family, my tribe, my subculture, for us to prosper. But I despise those people I'm living around. I I don't want to engage with them. I don't like them. I don't want to be here. I'm going to keep the culture at arm's length. I'm only going to use it for what can benefit me. 
I'm not going to pray for that place. I'm going to pray against it. That God will bring it down and get me out of here. And God says something different to these exiles. Something astonishing. It's not embrace and it's not defiance. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce, settle down. Don't decrease, but increase. Take wives and have sons and daughters and, and multiply and seek the welfare of this city where I have put you and pray to the Lord on its behalf because in its welfare, if it prospers, you will find your welfare. You will prosper. Now, prosper there is this Hebrew word shalom. And, and the, the root of it is to mean peace, but it's a rich word that, that carries so much more significance. It's, it's wholeness and blessing and good and, and prosperity and everything is the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's flourishing. Do you see the tension here? God is telling these exiles, I want you to pray for the flourishing of this community where the people who killed your family and friends are in control. I want you to seek its good. I want you to pray for them. Can you understand why Jeremiah was not a real popular guy in his day? I mean, nobody wants to hear a message like that. You get to be the messenger of God to say, uh, those hated enemies who killed your family I want you to bless them. I want you to serve them. I want you to love them. I want you to seek their good. How can God call his people to do something like that? Well, it only makes sense if you understand from, from the whole picture of the Bible who God is and, and what he's been doing. I mean, the story starts all the way back in Genesis. God creates a good world. He creates a garden. He puts the man and the woman in it. And he says, rule over it. Exercise dominion. Develop this world. Make it flourish. And it all falls apart. Because we say, no, I don't think that's what I want to do, God. I'd rather do it on my terms. And so it all becomes broken. And we become alienated from God. We are estranged from the creator because we said, I'm going to go my own way. And we see this picture back in the early chapters of Genesis. God looks at humanity and their thought is on nothing but evil all the time. And so he sends this flood to bring judgment. And, and yet he saves a family out of that, a family through whom he will bless the world. And Abraham is one of those descendants that God calls and says, Abraham, I want you and your descendants to be my people, and I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the world. Not just individually, but as a community. You're going to be a people that will reflect my goodness and my glory and my shalom and my flourishing in this world. And of course, they messed it up too. And God sends them into exile in Babylon, and yes, he brings them back. But ultimately, finally, God fulfills all those promises and all the hopes, and, and he, sends, he sends his son he sends his son to, to redeem and restore and rescue. Jesus is the one who left his home voluntarily to exile himself from the Father in order to bring back the strangers and the aliens and to bring 
wholeness and life into this broken world. Jesus knows what it is to be an exile. He knows what it is to live in a hostile culture and yet to live there to seek the flourishing of his enemies. And Jesus then is is the greater Adam who actually does what Adam was supposed to do. He he exercises authority and, and rules for our good and for God's glory to make this world look more like what it was supposed to. Jesus is the greater Abraham. He is the one who is blessed to bring blessing to the nations of the world. But the way Jesus does it is really important. Andy Crouch does a good job of bringing this out in a book that uh, someone recently pointed me towards called Strong and Weak. And uh, now I can't remember who that was, so thank you, anonymous stranger, uh, anonymous friend, for sharing that with me. Andy Crouch talks about the intersection of authority and vulnerability. Now, authority is the capacity for meaningful action. When you have authority, what you do and what you do not do makes a difference, makes a real difference in the world around you. And vulnerability, of course, is, is risk. It's the likelihood of being harmed. It's, it's being open to loss. Now, where you, up in the upper left, where you have all the authority and no vulnerability, that's exploitation, that's tyranny, right? That's, that's dictators. I make the rules and everyone else obeys. That's oppression. That's apartheid. That's, that's slavery. That's politicians making laws that they don't themselves have to follow. And the opposite of that on the other end is all vulnerability and no authority. That's suffering. That's being on the downside of oppression. That's being the oppressed people, that's prisoners and, and slaves, and, and, and I have, I'm impoverished, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm vulnerable, and I have no authority, I have no ability to change my circumstances. If you look in the corner over to the side there, no authority and no vulnerability is a kind of a withdrawal, it's sort of a passivity. I, I'm safe in my own little bubble, but I'm not investing myself in anything either. You know, it's sort of the picture of the, the son living in his parents' basement forever playing video games. Uh, it's all working out fine for me, but it's all about me. I, I can, ch- I, I, you know, you manage all the details and, and I'll just receive all the good. Flourishing happens where there is authority and vulnerability together. Where I have the ability to choose I can make a significant difference with my life, but I'm also willing to use that to put myself in a position of risk and loss for the sake of others. We use our authority to make ourselves vulnerable. That's the gospel. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does. That's what he invites us to follow him in doing. And that's where we have life and we have healthy leadership and we have blessed community. Andy Crouch says there's really no goal higher for us than to become people who are so full of authority and vulnerability that we display the reality of the creator in the middle of his creation. And that's what what Paul Borthwick was talking about last week, remember, in John 3. God so loved the world that he gave his son. 
God takes the initiative to seek the strangers and the aliens and the rebels, and out of love, he is willing to make it cost the life of his son. He has all the authority and yet makes himself totally vulnerable. That's the way that flourishing happens in our community. So maybe one question for us to ask ourselves is, I'm assuming we all have some kind of authority. All of us have the ability to make meaningful choices in my life. So the question is, where am I making myself vulnerable? Where am I investing myself for the sake of others? Because finally, the end of the story is glory. It's heaven, right? Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to rule and reign. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more sin. There is no more suffering. There is no more manipulating and dominating people. There's only joy and peace and life and love and beauty and everything working the way it's meant to be. Jesus will come again to reign and rule forever and ever for our good and for God's glory. It's that beautiful picture in the end of Revelation of the tree of, uh, that's by the river of the water of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And this picture of the kings of the earth bringing their splendor into the heavenly Jerusalem. Think about what that's going to be like. That's the end of the story. That's home for us. Peace, life, order, joy, worship. Everything broken and wrong in us and in the world is, is gone. And now we are part of God's mission to bring more of that into this world. Because we're not going to experience that until we get home. And so in this world, we are always going to feel homeless. We're always going to feel like exiles. It's always going to feel like we don't fit. Because Jesus is our home. He is the home that God provides for us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 11. I just want to look at a few verses that bring this out for us. The writer of the Hebrews is in chapter 11 going through this history of all these people of God who have lived and walked by faith. And, and he talks about Abraham in verse 11, uh, verse 8. He obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Abraham lived in the promised land, but he did not count it as his home because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Go down to verse 13. He talks about Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. All of them died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And it's not just because they were wandering in tents. I mean, he was in the promised land, but in the land of promise, recognizing this is not my home. 
Verse 16, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The end of the story is a city that God is calling us to, a city of life and joy and peace. But we're not there yet. And right now, we're in this world as strangers and aliens. And we are part of the city of God. And now we bring the reality of that city into the city where we live here today. I am only temporarily an American. I am permanently a citizen of God's city, of God's kingdom. And I am here as an ambassador of that city that I will live in forever to make this city look more like that one. God says, pray for Seek the welfare, seek the prosperity, the shalom, the flourishing of this community because God cares about it, about the politics and government and business and education and the justice system and public safety and families. And, and God tells us in our exile, in our exile here to seek the blessing of this city because when it's blessed, we will be blessed. Did you see that back in Jeremiah 29? In its welfare, in the welfare of this city where we live, we will find our welfare. We will find our shalom. That means that, that God's flourishing is not a limited resource. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not a competition. I don't have to grab for blessing in, in, at the expense of someone else. In fact, my Flourishing, my shalom is increased as I seek the blessing of the city where I live and the people I live around. So that means we look at this city for the things that are broken, the things that don't look like what they ought to ultimately. And, and we look at people that are in need and, and we invest ourselves to help others flourish. Jonathan and Jana Baker have been involved with a ministry called Safe Families for several years now. It's an organization that provides respite care for families that, uh, for different reasons, they need a break for caring for their kids. Uh, you know, sometimes kids actually end up homeless through no fault of their own. Uh, sometimes they're actually in the city really bad landlords. And sometimes families end up without water or heat for weeks at a time. Uh, so one of the things that blessing the city might look like is caring about how landlords treat their tenants, even though I'm not an apartment dweller. But sometimes, uh, you know, it's a new baby in the family, and there's no money for daycare, there's no family support, or, or sometimes it's just the grind of a single mom who's working a low-wage job, and she takes the bus an hour to get to work. And then she works for eight or more hours and, you know, there's a lunch break in the middle of that and then an hour to go back home. And then I got to pick up the kids from daycare and then I got to prepare a meal for them and, and get them ready for bed. And, and it can just become wearying and overwhelming. It would be for any of us. And, and there are a lot of people who don't have a support network to care for themselves or their families. And so 
And so it's an opportunity for the family to take a break. And, and so the bakers so over uh, the last years have taken kids into their home anywhere from a week to several months so that the parents can deal with short-term issues and, and get themselves better able to care for their kids and themselves. But the bakers are the ones who have been blessed by this. They, they've had a lot of diversity brought into their family that, that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And, and actually, uh, their, their kids have discovered some of their own gifts, like, hey, I'm actually pretty good at, at caring for toddlers that, that now they're using to bless and care for other people. Jonathan and Jan and their kids are doing that because they care about this community. And they want to see families flourish and kids cared for, not just their own kids, but kids in their neighborhood and, and in this city. And if you'd like more info, I know Jonathan would love to talk to you about that. There's even uh, an information gathering coming up next week where you can find out more about what it would look like to, to be a host family. But man, blessing our city looks like so many things. People at Faith have responded to, to crisis and broken families by adopting at-risk kids, by advocating for them in the court system. I mean, we have all kinds of opportunities with ministries that we partner with to, to go and get involved in the lives of, of people who are hurting and broken through life centers, through Wheeler, through Shepherd, through, through Good News. Jim would love to talk to you about coming down to Good News and, and having an opportunity to be and share good news with people who are hurting and lonely and lost. We, we work with Habitat for Humanity to build quality, affordable housing with the working poor because we want people to have decent housing in our community. And we advocate, we care for refugees and immigrants because we know what it's like to be an alien and a stranger in this world. And, and there's ways to do that through FIAC. And, uh, you know, uh, Bob was telling me, we have unreached people groups living literally across the street. People that we would never be able to share the gospel with or invite to church in their home countries, but God has brought them here. What would seeking their blessing look like if we were to engage them on behalf of Jesus? You know, it means we care about things like decent education in our community. Amelia and Ben uh, became concerned uh, a couple of years ago when we were living in Florissant when they found out that uh, our school board was proposing some cuts to music education in our schools. And so they went to the school board meetings, they gathered information, they made a case for the, the value of arts to the community and in, in the development of young people. And, and then when a school bond issue got passed, the, the music education funding was restored because of Amelia and Ben's advocacy for, for all the kids in the community. I mean, we get involved with things like city councils and, and medical clinics and legal clinics and, and libraries and baseball leagues and rotary club and hospital auxiliary and, and fraternal order of police and, and on and on. My brother, uh, Brad, is a lay minister who goes to serve a, at the veterans' home uh, in the town where he lives. Because he says there, there are guys there who have served their country and some of them are forgotten. They have no one visiting them. And so he's gone in there and gotten to know these guys and developed friendships with them and prays with them and leads Bible studies. He's seen guys come to Christ because he was just willing to go out 
and bless the community that he lives in. And it's not just volunteering. When you think about it, our jobs are now transformed in, in how we look at them. They become places not just where we're going to earn a living, not just to get money, but, but we're actually now in those places to bring more of the peace and the joy and the life and the love of the kingdom of heaven, the city of God, into those workplaces. The way that we do our work becomes an opportunity to bring order from chaos and, and to bring joy and hope and blessing. The way that we work with our coworkers, the way that we treat customers, the, the way that we do our jobs becomes an expression of blessing. I, I'm not going to work anymore to compete and to, to grab what I can to get ahead. I'm going there to bring peace. Augustine, in, in his famous writing on the city of man and the city of God, says the city of man is about grabbing and grasping and, and oppression and, and anxiety because I, I'm going into the city to get what I can out of it because I need an identity and I, I'm looking for love and security and significance. But the city of God is based on the principle that I already have all those things in Christ. I have an identity. I have a love. I have a significance. I have a home. I have a hope. I have a purpose. So now I go into my work. Now I go into the city to, not to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to get what I can from you. But now I go in saying, my life to serve you. Because that's the pattern of Jesus. What would it look like if I went into my work tomorrow? Monday's tomorrow, right? Well, maybe we have the day off, right? It's President's Day. Tuesday. What would it look like to go into our work Tuesday and say, I'm here to serve and bless and seek the good of my coworkers and the people on the phone and, and even my frustrating bosses? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let your good deeds shine before men that they may see your Father and glorify him. That's not just individual good deeds, but as we go out into the world, we're seeking its good. And that means we are here to preserve what is good in every area of life where it does not look like what it should look like ultimately. And that means we care about racism and the environment and government and refugees and sex trafficking and the national security and veterans and our neighbors and on and on and on. And I know it's just overwhelming, right? I mean, I can hardly keep my sock drawer organized. How am I going to do all of this? But God is not asking you to do it all. God is asking his church to care about it all. God isn't asking you to save the world. He's asking you to do your part in your place in the world to make that look a little more like what it ultimately is supposed to look like. And one of the ways that we can start is by asking, what would it look like to seek the blessing of my neighborhood? Where's the brokenness? Where's the alienation? Where's Where's the stuff in my neighborhood that's not what it should be? And, and what could I do about that? Uh, Joey and Jenna have shared that they uh, moved 
uh, last year or so, partially because they were, they were on a busy road and they really didn't have any opportunity to connect with their neighbors and, and to be part of the community there. And so they moved into a new house and they, they started reaching out to uh, a number of neighbors, but to particularly one family uh, across the road. And uh, so Joey's been connecting with him and uh, working on projects together, sharing tools. They, uh, they uh, have been doing a fence project repair together, uh, although I think... Uh, was that hammering your finger from that project or another one? Yeah. So there's some risk involved, right? We make ourselves vulnerable. You might get your finger smashed by connecting with your neighbor over working on a project together. Anna's connected with their daughter and, and they have play dates and they're in each other's homes. And, and then the wife's dad died recently. And, and they, you know, just in the context of conversation, found out that, that was pretty overwhelming. I mean, to the point where the wife has a hard time still driving past a funeral home. And Jenna's been reaching out to her and encouraging her and, and praying with her and, and trying to offer hope and, and just saying, hey, I'm here, I care, I'm sorry. And they know Joey's a pastor, didn't, didn't send up any red flags, uh, because the Weismans have just been very natural about that. They they've obviously care about their neighbors. And yeah, they've invited them to come worship and, and they haven't taken them up on it yet, but there's no pressure. It's just a friendly invitation that grows out of care and concern. Even their home reflects some care for neighbors. Uh, Joey mentioned that uh, there's a couple of weird floodlights placed on one side of the house and apparently there, uh, a number of years back, was a dark spot around the corner of the neighborhood where there wasn't any street light. And so it was dark and teenagers would come and hang out and get into trouble. And, and so the previous owner of the house just said, well, I can do something about that. And so he put a couple of floodlights on the side of his house. And now the neighborhood's lit and safe. What would it look like for you to seek the blessing of your neighborhood? Maybe there's a single mom who could use a friend. Or maybe her kids could use a, f a friendly, healthy adult male in their lives. Maybe there's an older neighbor who has trouble keeping up with their yard or, uh, you know, shoveling the driveway in all this terrible winter weather we've had lately. <laughs> maybe there's a family uh, that, that's going through a tough time. And, and maybe, you know, in our suburban enclaves where we all retreat into our homes, maybe they wonder, does anyone care? Do I even matter to anyone here? And, and they need some encouragement. Maybe, maybe kids just need a peaceful, friendly place to hang out. We're, we go into our neighborhoods often and, you know, we have big homes and sometimes big yards and it's easy for us to get distanced and disconnected. And maybe in a lot of our neighborhoods, we don't even really know who the neighbors are. What if it's going to be like 70 degrees this week? I mean, what if we just fired up the grill? had a barbecue and invited some friends over. Said, hey, come on, let's just hang out. We got to eat anyway. What if we did that as a way, though, of being strategic about trying to create community and connection in our neighborhoods where, where we often don't have any? Connect, care, and bless. That's the pattern. What could that look like for you? An anonymous second century follower of Christ wrote to a friend named Diognetus to explain why he'd become a Christian. And he talks in this letter to Diognetus about the way that Christians live in the world, that they're different from it, but for the good of the city. 
Christians do not inhabit separate cities of their own. They don't speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. Any country can be their homeland. But whatever it is, it's a foreign country to them. Like others, they marry and have children, but they share their meals, but not their wives. They pass their days on the earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. They live in poverty, but enrich many. This is from 1,800 years ago. Here's what it looks like to bless the city. They live to enrich many. We are homeless here. We are exiles. And we're not going to be home until we see Jesus or he comes back first. So as long as we live in this earth, we're going to feel a little ill at ease, a little homeless, a little restless. But we are here as part of God's mission to restore the shalom, the flourishing, the, the wholeness that has been broken and to make this world look a little more like what it will look like eventually when Jesus comes back. In our, our families, our homes, our neighborhoods, we make the invisible kingdom of God visible by how we live and how we work and how we serve and how we give. We seek the shalom, the flourishing, the blessing of this city to try to make this place of our exile look a little more like Jesus is ruling and reigning here because he is. God's people are true to our calling when we bless others, pray for this city, seek its peace and its prosperity. As exiles, let's be about bringing more of the kingdom of God to this place. Let me pray for us. Father, we do come to you in, in gratitude and joy, Father, that Jesus is the one who has sought us out, strangers wandering from you to bring us home. And Father, we feel it terribly. Obviously, we are not home yet. So God, as exiles and strangers here, help us to be about your mission, to use our authority, our, the extent of of our lives to invest ourselves, to bless, to serve, to bring shalom and healing and wholeness. God, would you, would you have mercy? Would you be gracious to this city through your people, through your church, God? May we bring the aroma of Christ, the light of Christ, the beauty, the love of Christ into all the places where you have us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.